Good morning. <laughs> All right. Uh, for the past six weeks, uh, Pastor Paul has been leading us through a series, a sermon series that we've been calling Foundations. Um, and the purpose for this series uh, was outlined back at the very beginning in the first installment. Um, but the, the purpose for this series has been to re-clarify the core values and commitments of Grace Valley Church. Um, because as churches grow, um, and as they change in their makeup and in their demographics, uh, it can be very easy to lose sight of the path that you set out on. Um, and so it's incredibly important to periodically take stock um, of where we are and remind ourselves of what we originally set out to do and to make sure that uh, first things are still first. Um, and so when Grace Valley was planted, um, I remember at the time it was very emphatically referred to as a missional church, right? And um, there are times when I feel like that's a little bit of a redundant statement because, of course, all churches ought to be missional. But the fact is that many aren't, and without intention, uh, probably none would be. Um, and so, from the outset, it was a shared commitment of the core membership of GBC to never settle for being anything less than a missional church. Why? Because the church, by its very definition, is on mission. The body of Christ exists to proclaim to the world the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that he accomplished in them. We proclaim the core message, which is what Pastor Paul preached about in the first installment of this series um, from Mark 1. Do you remember what that core message was? From Mark 1, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, this core message is not just something that we organize everything around internally here at Grace Valley, and it's not just uh, the, the thing that we use as, to determine what programs we run or what ministries we facilitate. It's the very message that we proclaim to the world at every opportunity. This is sometimes called evangelism. The idea of proclaiming by word of mouth the good news of Jesus Christ. And this word evangelism comes from the Greek word for gospel, which means good news. And so evangelism could more or less be defined as good newsism. Um, and the mission of the church is then, therefore, good newsism. We've been commissioned with the proclamation of this good news far and wide until Jesus returns and until his kingdom is fully and finally consummated here on earth and it's this very commission that we see jesus handing down in our text today uh, this portion of acts one is luke's reporting on the events of the great commission uh, this is the last earthly exchange between jesus and his disciples before his ascension and in it jesus corrects their thinking on a few things he corrects their thinking on the vision of the kingdom, on the power of the kingdom, and on the method of the kingdom. Those are the three things that we're going to look at from this text. All right. Acts 1, verse 6. 
Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So Luke tells us that Jesus has been resurrected now for about 40 days. And he's spent that time teaching them about the kingdom of God. This is the only information that we have about what they spent that time doing in between his resurrection and his ascension. So as far as we know, he spent 40 days straight teaching them about his kingdom or about the kingdom of God. And so it's surprising that after everything, after all of this, and don't forget the man that they're talking to had been dead for three days, right? So after all of this still, they don't take Jesus at his word. They still don't understand what Jesus has been trying to tell them. Um, how many times prior to his resurrection did he rebuke them for their thick-headedness? But here again, they convey that they have a very small vision of the kingdom of God. They think it's still going to be an earthly restoration of the human kingdom of Israel to its former glory. But Jesus doesn't get mad at them. Instead, here in this particular place, he, he corrects them in a kind of unusual, indirect, but very gentle way. Um, it seems that he remembers that they, like us, are merely finite humans with finite perspectives on things. The disciples, they want to settle for this limited ethnic human kingdom, but Jesus has been trying to impress upon them that the kingdom of God is spiritual, it's ultimately inclusive, and it's boundless in both time and space. And so he answers, it's not for you to know the times and dates that the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, this is God's kingdom, not your kingdom. And he's been working on this for a very, very long time. <laughs> you have a very narrow perspective on things. And it revolves around you and your own interests. But the kingdom of God revolves around Jesus, the word made flesh. What began as a blessing to one specific people group has reached its culmination and is now explicitly in a new stage where it is now a blessing to the whole world, right? It began as sort of an inward spiral with the people of God being drawn from all over the world to the temple, to Jerusalem, to the central location, uh, which was symbolic of God's presence and provision to his people, where they would go to receive his blessing. Now the whole thing has been reversed, and now it radiates outwards from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And so it's a whole new program. And Jesus has to correct the way his disciples think about this kingdom. And when Jesus says in verse 8 that his disciples are going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth, he's making a prophetic statement. Right? He isn't just giving them a game plan. He's describing what is actually going to come to pass, what the rest of the book of Acts records. He's describing what's going to happen despite what they think about the kingdom. So he's saying that even though they don't get it yet, or even though they don't see the big picture, even though it's not for them to know the dates or times that the Father has set, God is going to bring about his kingdom in his way 
and he's going to use them to do it, whether they understand what's happening while it's happening or not. And the same is true of all of the disciples of Jesus in all times, in all, times, in all places, which means that it's true uh, for you and me as well. Because we, like these original disciples, are human, and we too have a very small and distorted vision of the kingdom often. And yet, we can still be confident that he is accomplishing his exact kingdom purposes through us as we seek to be faithful disciples. So how does this happen? Jesus says to his disciples in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Let's just point to the power of the kingdom. Of course, Jesus is looking ahead to Pentecost, um, which is likely seven days or so from this, this moment. Um, when the Holy Spirit is going to come on his disciples, he's going to fill them with power for kingdom ministry in ways that they did not even understand. Right? And this same Holy Spirit, this same kingdom power, has taken up residence in all Jesus' disciples. Again, so this is relevant to you and I as well. They may not always work in the same ways in all times and places, but he is the same. Okay, so the disciples are expecting a display of military might to overthrow the Roman Empire and to reestablish Israel to its former glory. But that's not what's going to happen. Rather, Jesus is sending them spiritual power for the establishment of a spiritual kingdom. And they don't realize it yet, but this spiritual power is far superior to any physical or military might when it comes to overthrowing the corrupt regimes of this world. It just doesn't happen in the way that you would, you would expect. The Holy Spirit is described by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 as the power source of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's described as the spirit who gives life. See, military might advances kingdoms by taking life. But the Holy Spirit advances the kingdom of God by raising the dead to new life. Right? The advancement of human kingdoms invariably leaves a wake of destruction. But the advance of the kingdom of God brings restoration to a broken world. This is a very different kingdom driven by a very different kind of power. Do you ever doubt your ability to evangelize or to share the reason for your faith effectively? Do you ever feel like there's no way that you could ever share the gospel with a, with a certain person that's in your life or that this certain person would just simply never be open to accepting it? I know I certainly do. And in those moments, we need to remember this. The Holy Spirit, the same source of power that raised Jesus from death after three days in the tomb is with you, and he wants to raise a whole bunch of more people to new life. We need to remember that. Spiritually speaking, and I know uh, this is not the most flattering image, and so I apologize for that, but it's a vivid illustration of a spiritual reality, which is that spiritually speaking, a person without Christ is a lifeless corpse. 
And if the Holy Spirit comes along and decides that he is going to breathe new life into that corpse, do you think that corpse is able to resist it? Of course not. And that is the spiritual state of our unbelieving family members, friends, co-workers, neighbors. All the eloquence in the world isn't going to bring them to new life. Only the animating power of the Holy Spirit can. So it's not about the quality of your gospel presentation. It's not about you getting all the words right. It's about your willingness to share what the Holy Spirit has done for you. Because you were dead just like them until he raised you to new life yourself. And that, I mean, that is what we hear when Zach and Mika give their testimony here this morning. Obviously, it sounds a little bit different uh, than that. But what they're effectively describing is the Holy Spirit bringing them from death to life. They're describing the goodness of God at work in them. And this is my last point, which is the method of the kingdom. This is the method of the kingdom. Because the second part of... Verse 8 says, after you receive this power, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is how the kingdom is going to advance, through Christians sharing what Jesus has done for them. You will be my witnesses. So let's consider what it means to be a witness. It has a courtroom feel to it, doesn't it? You could be called to the stand, called upon to describe events, events that you yourself have experienced, events that you've seen with your own eyes, heard with your own ears, and you describe them as faithfully to the details as you can. Jesus is telling his disciples, your job is to go to the world, to anyone who will listen, and tell them all the things that you have seen and heard from me. Go pass it on. And it's interesting, too, that the word that we translate as witness is the Greek word for martyr. So let's think about that for a minute. Because in the case of the disciples, anyway, it's true. uh, According to tradition, every one of the 12 other than John uh, was believed to have been violently martyred for the sake of the gospel. And there's an expression... That the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. To be martyred for one's beliefs is a powerful witness to the value and veracity of those beliefs. Right? Think about it. What would motivate a person to voluntarily suffer a terrible, painful death? Right? Perhaps the most natural human instinct is to cling to life with all we've got. Right? Martyrs then communicate through their actions that they have found something that is more valuable than life itself and that they refuse to let go of it at any cost. But thank the Lord that not all Christians are called to make that terrible choice. But we are called to use our lives as witnesses. There is a cost to count. But just as so many of the martyrs are reported to have gone to their deaths smiling and singing, the Holy Spirit empowers us to witness in a special way because like everything else in God's kingdom, 
It all works together beautifully. We are designed at the very core of our being to worship, to glorify, to praise, to witness to a supreme good outside of ourselves. This is encoded in our very nature. This is why we Instagram plates of food. <laughs> it's why I take pictures of beautiful sunsets on my phone, and then when I share them, every single time I tell people, the picture doesn't do it justice. I don't, why the impulse to share then, right? C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, The Reflections on, Reflections on the Psalms, I think he captured it rather well. And he said this, he said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. So what is he saying? He's saying that if we have been overwhelmed by the beauty and the soul satisfaction that can be found only in life with Christ, then that experience of satisfaction and joy reaches its completion it's appointed consummation in the sharing of that experience with someone else. It would be incomplete if we didn't share it. You know, the Westminster Catechism, uh, we often quote question answer one, right? What is the chief end or purpose of man or humans? It is to glorify and enjoy God forever. And I think what, what Lewis and others after him, like John Piper, really stumbled upon is that our enjoyment of our right relationship with God naturally spills over in our glorification of him as we complete that joy in sharing it with others. In other words, we are actually hardwired for evangelism. We just might not realize it yet, but we evangelize. We share the good news about all kinds of things all the time. But for some reason, we think it's different when it comes to faith. Why is it that the most significant thing about us, we feel it's impolite to share? Right? That doesn't make any sense. We need, to, we need to get beyond that stigma. We were designed to experience the goodness of God and then to share it with others. As God told Abraham, I will bless you so that you and your offspring will be a blessing to all nations, right? Wherever the goodness of God is experienced, there will be people talking about it. And since God is good at all times and in all places, he will be spoken about to the ends of the earth. Okay, so we know that by the power of the Spirit, this commission is going to be fulfilled one way or another. But many of us still struggle with the idea of evangelism. And so I just want to end with some practical things that I found helpful um, in shaping my own thinking about evangelism. First being this. Uh, we live in an ever-changing world. And so we need to regularly reassess how we share the gospel so that we're doing it in such a way that modern audiences can actually hear it. Um, some of the things that come to mind when we think about evangelism may be relics of a bygone era. Maybe not, but maybe. Gone are the days when it was safe to assume 
that anyone you talk to in the Western world knows who Jesus is and understands the basic contours of the gospel already. It's, it's hard to make an elevator pitch these days. Um, we live in a post-Christian cultural moment, and so we ought to assume, and there are exceptions to this, obviously, friends and family members that we know have a religious background, but we ought to assume in general that our conversation partners know nothing of the gospel, and we must explain it clearly and carefully. And this requires time. And you have to give them a reason to give you that time. You have to earn it. So think more in terms of relationship. Extend hospitality. People are lonely. They're looking for someone to talk to. Many unlikely converts were made around dinner tables. And it's not that the Holy Spirit can't use a quick conversation at the bus stop, but evangelism is much more about an ongoing engagement than ever before. So if you're stuck thinking about evangelism as, you know, a door-to-door pitch like the Jehovah's Witness or uh, street preaching on the corner or handing out tracts, there are other ways to think about it. That's my point. (laughs) Um, But then also, be patient. Uh, Think like a gardener. I think most of us, uh, we think if we're going to invest time in evangelism, we want to see results immediately. Um, And so we're looking for a harvest before we've ever sowed seeds. Um, Yeah, think like a gardener. Be patient. Don't feel pressured to share the entire gospel in the very first conversation. Uh, Go slow. Get to know this person. Get to know how they think. Engage with them. Uh, Actually care what they think. Uh, Greg Kukul is someone who I I found kind of helpful on this, and he has a little image. He talks about putting a pebble in someone's shoe. His goal when he has these sort of passing conversations is just to leave them with something that is going to roll around in their brain, something that's going to kind of catch them, um, and leave them with something to think about. All right, and as though, although I put this one last, it ought to come first. Prayer. <laughs> Pastor Paul preached on uh, prayer recently and being prayer centered as people of God. Um, and I confess this is one that um, I, have, I have not been as committed to it as I should be, but we need to be praying. If it's true that the Holy Spirit dwells in us and is, a power, is the power for evangelism, then why would we not be asking Him constantly to prepare the hearts of those around us? to receive the good news, and to provide opportunities to share it. Prayer is a big part of evangelism, um, and so we can't neglect it. And so, well, that's really all I'm going to say. So we're going to pray now. Look at that. Father in heaven, thank you for the good news. Lord, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ and how he's making all things new, bringing the dead to life. Let us never grow tired of sharing the amazing things that you've done for us. Holy Spirit, you know the people in our lives who need to receive the truth. Prepare their hearts for it. Provide opportunities for us to share and give us the wisdom, the boldness, the patience, and the love to do so well. We pray all this confidently in the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Thank you, uh, Mark. I really like that. I like that image of the pebble in the shoe. You know, when you're, I, I get this in the summertime because I wear Birkenstocks and you, you're in the summertime and then you're, you're walking along and all of a sudden, I don't know how these little bits of stones or whatever get under your foot while you're walking. It's just, it's just enough to irritate you. Um, and you let it go for a while and then eventually you just go, oh, what a pain this is. And I got to stop and I kick off my thing, my sandal and clean it out and then put it back on and go. And that's kind of the idea, right? So you share things with people that just give them something to think about. And I thought, you know, maybe I should try to throw a pebble in someone's shoe before the service is over. And I'm going to use, I'm going to use this pebble because we've been talking about, we heard from Zach and Mika about hardship and pain and suffering. We've been praying about the suffering that's going on in the world right now. Uh, everything from war to pandemics to, uh, yeah, the list goes on and on and on. And what I have found very interesting when I talk to people who, who, who don't believe in God, I've never met one who does not have a very strong sense of justice. We all have a sense of justice. We all look at certain things that happen either in the world at large or that happen to us and in our lives and say, hey, that's not fair or that's wrong or you know, that's screwed up, man. And we feel this sense of injustice. And what I like to ask people when we talk about that, because oftentimes that's one of the reasons people don't like God and don't want to believe in God, because they say, this whole world is screwed up, and so is my life, and God is supposed to be good, and he's supposed to be powerful, and he doesn't do anything about it. Hmm, I would beg to differ that he does a lot about it, actually, but that's a different pebble. The pebble here is, if there is no God and this universe just sort of popped into existence through a bang or through billions of years of evolution or whatever, and, but there's no like rhyme or reason to it, there's nobody from outside of it looking down and, and making decisions about how it should uh, unfold, it's just sort of random and chance and all that kind of stuff, why do we have this sense of justice at all? Where on earth does that come from? You can't say it comes from the natural world, because I, like I said in my catechism class, when I watch uh, David Attenborough's thing, what's that, Planet Earth or the Lonely Planet? Or, I mean, they're all, about, they're all by him, right? But whatever. When I watch all these awesome nature shows, all I see is, like, lions eating gazelles and... Lizards trying to escape snakes, and basically the strong eating the weak, and the survival of the fittest, and natural selection, and all that kind of stuff. And then you get to human beings, and we say stuff like, no, it's wrong for one group of people to trample on another group of people. Or where do we get that from? I'm just asking. There's your pebble. <laughs> 